So here's the question I've been pondering for a little while now. What were the original followers of Jesus thinking one week after the resurrection? Because here we are, one week after Easter, and I'm wondering, what were those original disciples thinking? What was going through their mind one week after the resurrection of their teacher, their master Jesus? I want you to consider for a moment the emotional roller coaster they must have been on because of the previous couple of weeks. It began two weeks ago with a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus riding into the city on the back of a donkey, the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the new king, and declaring Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one that was prophesied about throughout the Jewish scriptures. He was to be God's anointed one, and not only save people from their sins, but free the Jews from the oppressive rule of the despised Roman government. And these excited crowds, they enthusiastically celebrated the inauguration of their new king on that first Palm Sunday. Things never looked better if you were a follower of this itinerant preacher from Galilee. But almost as quickly, the tide turned on Jesus. Because later in this same week, one of his disciples, one of the 12, betrayed him into the hands of the threatened Jewish authorities. Followers of Jesus looked on in horror as he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to execution in an illegal, unethical, illegitimate trial that could only be described as a kangaroo court. Jesus was mocked and spat upon. He was ridiculed and humiliated and cruelly scourged and beaten within an inch of his life. The Roman soldiers finished the job by pounding Jesus to a cross. A punishment reserved those deemed the worst of criminals. Followers of Jesus were baffled, bewildered by the turn of events, how their leader had gone from the long-awaited Messiah to public enemy number one in the course of a few short days. Then, after three long, lonely days, some of Jesus' followers reported that the tomb that he'd been buried in was empty. In fact, some of his followers even claimed that they had seen him, seen Jesus alive and well. And in the course of this same week, following the resurrection, Jesus appeared to many of his disciples on several occasions, convincing them that it was really him, resurrected from the dead. He had them touch his, his nail-scarred hands and feet. He showed them the wound in his side. So they'd know that it was really him, not a ghost, not a figment of their imagination, but Jesus. Their minds were blown. So put yourself in their place. Think of what would be going through your mind one week following the resurrection. It's a week after these events have taken place. You probably still can't get your mind around all of the events that have transpired, but you have become convinced that your teacher and master Jesus has risen from the dead just as he predicted you remember now because you've seen him. You touched his nail-printed hands, so you know he's real. And some of his former teaching, it's beginning to make sense now on this side of the cross. But there's still so much you don't understand, still so much you can't comprehend. You don't know you got questions about your future and your purpose, your role in relationship to Jesus and his kingdom and his mission. 
In fact, you probably still have more questions than answers one week after the resurrection. So I'll ask you the question once again. What do you think the original followers of Jesus were thinking one week after the resurrection? I'll tell you what I think they were thinking. Actually, no, let me say it this way. I know what I'm thinking one week after Easter. I know what I'm currently thinking given the fact, the truth of this resurrected Savior. Because I can put what I'm currently thinking and what I think, what I imagine those original disciples were thinking one week after the resurrection, I think I can put it in the form of a question. See, the question I'm asking myself now, one week after Easter, is this. Now what? So now what? Like, now what do I do? Given the fact, the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead, what do I do? Because my whole life has now been turned upside down by the resurrection of this Jewish carpenter. See, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead has altered the trajectory of my life more than any other factor possibly could. It changes everything. I mean, it has to. The reality of the resurrection has become the focus of my faith, the basis of my purpose, and my future. Before the resurrection, it was the power of Jesus' life, the life he lived that impacted me more than anything else. You see, Jesus' teaching already began to transform my thinking and transform my life. His teaching has this combination of wisdom and power, authority, compassion, truth, and love. Like love of another kind. And that's not all, though. It's not just his teaching. Jesus heals people, and he performs miracles by the, by the power of God, and yet he never does it for show, only in response to human need. I mean, he's so amazing, and yet, like, so humble. Who is he? His lifestyle has shown me a different way to live, not to be served, but to serve, not to grasp for love, but to extend it, to give it freely. You know, he modeled a life that demonstrated a life dedicated to loving God and loving others. In fact, his lifestyle is so winsome, like it's so compelling that I want to follow him. I want to imitate him and become like him. Because his life demonstrates a better way to live. And the resurrection confirms that he's the real deal, that he has power over life and death. His victory over the grave, it authenticates that he is the authority concerning meaning and purpose of this life. You can put your trust in him for your salvation and your eternal destiny. See, that's what I'm now thinking this side of the resurrection. And the reality is once you believe in the resurrected Jesus, your life is no longer your own. But it's lived to communicate and demonstrate the power and truth of the gospel. See, that's our answer to now what? Now what do we do as followers of this Jesus? What do you do is you follow him, you represent him, and you join him in his mission. That's what, now what? That's the answer to now what? Yeah, and Jesus said as much dozens of times during his earthly ministry. 
He called his disciples to follow him, to imitate him, join him in his work, and be careful to obey everything he had been teaching them. He was demonstrating for them so when he's gone, they would know what to do, how to do it. And just for good measure, before the after the resurrection, but before ascending to heaven to be with his father, Jesus reminded his followers that they would be his witnesses. They would represent him both near and far. Jesus left them this great commission, this co-mission to tell others about his life, death, and resurrection, to teach all those who would believe their message to be baptized and then obey everything that he had taught them. Jesus' plan from the beginning was to have his followers, like us, represent him and join him in carrying out his mission. So now what, you ask? Well, for some of you, your first step is to get baptized, to, to identify yourself with Jesus. It's a first step. If you haven't done it, that's the first thing you do as a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's a, baptism is this public declaration that you are a follower, that you've put your faith in him for salvation, that you've committed your life to him. You recognize him as savior and God's son. Some of you need to take that step. You heard Carrie. We're having an information meeting for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, getting baptized is, is obeying his first command. It's identifying with him and saying, I'm a follower. I'm not ashamed of it. Some of you, that's the answer to your now what question. It's to go to the class following the service. We'll help you write your testimony. Then on May 12th, Mother's Day, we'll baptize you right here, right here. It'll be awesome. It'll be a testimony of your faith in Christ and his transforming power in your life. Some of you, your answer to now what is to get yourself baptized. For some of the rest of us who have already been baptized as a follower of Jesus, our answer to now what is to continue to carry out this mission he has left for us. So let's be really clear as to what this mission is. Thankfully, Jesus made his mission really clear right at the front end of his earthly ministry. In fact... In Jesus' first sermon in his hometown in Nazareth, Jesus plainly states his mission while here on earth. The text for this morning is actually found in Luke chapter 4. You can turn with me there. It'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 4, I'll start reading from verse 16. Reads this way. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place in Isaiah chapter 61 where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, in his first sermon in his home church, he turns to the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61 and just reads the first verse and a half. That's it. Then he sits down, takes him maybe 30 seconds. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, that's my kind of sermon. <laughs> No such luck today, so stay seated. 
We have more to read. But in half a minute, in a verse and a half of text, Jesus nets out his earthly ministry, the mission of his life, the work he was called to do. And he does it by paraphrasing this first paragraph of Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus begins by clarifying that he was both qualified and commissioned for the work he came into the world to do. Look at verse 18 of chapter 4. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus says, I am qualified for this mission, the work before me. Why? Because I'm, empow I'm empowered by God's spirit. The spirit of the Lord is on me. So I'm qualified for this task. And then he continues. He says, for he has anointed me. God has chosen me, equipped me, anointed me for this task, for this mission. See, Jesus was both qualified and commissioned for the mission of Isaiah 61. So then he continues and he breaks it down, making five statements, five claims as to his mission, his work while here on earth. And it sounds like he purposely directs the tasks, the aspects of each mission to those who are broken and beaten down, those who have little or no hope. Follow me as I trace the, the five aspects of Jesus' mission, because Jesus says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is how Jesus defines his mission, which is consequently now our mission as we follow him and represent him. Now what? We have just inherited Jesus' mission, that's what. So let's clarify our commission phrase by phrase so you and I know what we're called to do. God has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. The word poor here not only means poor in material wealth, but it means poor in spirit as well. Those who are sad and sorrowful because of their sin. Those whose hearts are broken because of rejection or abandonment. Those wounded by harsh and hurtful words spoken by somebody they loved. The poor refer to the ones who may have felt hopeless, helpless, forgotten, and worthless. It is these kinds of people that Jesus, and you and I for that matter, are called to proclaim the good news to. So what's our good news? Man, our good news is that God has made a way. That God has made a way for broken, sinful people to be forgiven and put in right relationship with the God who created them, the God who loves them. That's good news, people. Turn over in your Bible one page to Luke chapter 5. The context is some religious people, some church folk are giving Jesus a hard time because he's hanging out with poor people, irreligious people. He's befriending those who are beaten down and broken. And Jesus answers his critics with the briefest definition of the gospel, of the good news. In verse 531, Jesus says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A little, a little later on in his ministry, Jesus states it this way in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. See, the good news for us and our friends is that for those of us prone to sinfulness and selfishness is that we don't need to clean ourselves up before God accepts us. That he calls us to himself as we are in all our brokenness, in all our insecurity, in all our shame. And he loves us. He loves us unconditionally, just as we are, no strings attached. 
God initiated this relationship with us before we could do anything for him, before we could perform or behave righteously. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. He writes, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ died for us before we ever tried to even measure up, before we could do anything to impress him or, or win him over, convince him of our worth and value. This is reassuring to people who, who are not sure they'll ever measure up. So Jesus declares right out of the gate, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, the good news that God has taken the initiative and made a way for them, a way to have your sins forgiven, a way to have your relationship with God restored. This is our message, people. This is good news that broken, beaten people need to hear. It's awesome. Yeah. Hey, it gets better. Jesus' second claim, second statement concerning his mission and our now inherited mission is this. Back in Luke 4, 18. God has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. See, God just says, one of, Jesus says one of his primary objectives of his mission is to set people free. To free people imprisoned by their self-defeating beliefs. To free people held captive in their destructive behavioral patterns. Those shackled by fear and insecurity. Jesus says his mission is to set people free. But I me, mean, how? Like, how do people get set free? Well, Jesus reveals the process, how we're set free all throughout Scripture. But probably the best place, probably the foundation for this kind of liberation is found in John 8:32, where Jesus says it this way to his disciples. He says, if you hold to my teaching, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, that's the key. The truth sets you free. The truth is found in God's word. That's why we preach the Bible around here, not man's opinion, right? That, that's why we have groups like Starting Point, yeah, and community groups. Hey, get this. That's why we're building adult classrooms right up here that we'll enjoy in the fall because we're convinced that you need to learn the truth. So we're gonna have more Sunday classes. We're gonna have more Bible studies, right? You need to know the truth about God, his son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. You need to understand the truth about concerning sin and forgiveness and salvation. The truth about the power of prayer and the priority of worship. The truth about community, serving, surrender, eternity, God's plan and purpose for your life. You need to know the truth about this stuff. You need to know the truth about your enemy, your advocate, and your destiny. You need to know the truth about these things because the truth sets you free. It's what Jesus came to do, is to set you free, you knowing the truth. See, when the truth is correctly understood, embraced, and properly applied, the Spirit of God transforms people from the inside out. In John 8, 36, Jesus clearly states that when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, people are freed from the power of sin in their lives, are freed up to live the life that Jesus modeled for them, the, the life they were called to live in the first place. And their life is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, rather than the fruit of selfishness and the fruit of sinfulness. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Jesus came to set you and I free. Came to set prisoners free. Jesus claims his mission is to preach good news to the poor and proclaim freedom from the prisoners, but he's long from done. Jesus also claims that he's been sent so the blind recover their sight, to bring light into darkness, 
See, because the love of Christ, it opens up the eyes of the most hardened sinner to his amazing grace. See, the truth of Christ helps those ones blinded to their sin see their need for a power greater than themselves, their need for a savior, and one who can save them and empower them to defeat their evil thought patterns and behaviors that once kept them in darkness. See, our message to those who are once blind to the truth of Christ is this, that anyone who admits their need and applies Jesus' death on the cross to their sin, their lives are totally transformed. See, Jesus' death on the cross utterly destroys the power of sin in the believer's life. God gives them a new heart with new desires, and his spirit in them now empowers them to live differently. And all who have experienced the transforming power of Jesus in their life have the same testimony. You know what it is? You'll hear it on Baptism Sunday. It's this. I once was blind, but now I see. See, because Jesus comes and helps blind recover their sight. Jesus further claims that his mission was to release the oppressed, to bring a relief to those burdened by their sin, weighed down by their guilt and shame. See, Jesus takes the weight of these oppressive thoughts and behavior, behaviors and puts them squarely on his shoulders in the form of a cross. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus tells all who have felt the heavy burden of their own sin exactly how they can find release. Here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Trust me, follow me, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Jesus takes your burden of guilt, your sin, and puts it on his back, and the same time that he's being nailed to a cross, you're being released from your oppression. You're being released from the penalty of your sin. The good news is that Jesus has made a way for you. His sacrifice on the cross, it purchased your freedom, it released you from your oppression, and make no mistake, your release is free to you, but it cost Jesus his life. See, that was the mission of his life, was to lay down his for yours. The message of the cross is now our mission, is to tell people about what Jesus did. So if you're asking yourself, now what? Now what do I do following the resurrection? Why don't you tell people about what Jesus did on the cross for them? that he became sin who knew no sin so we could become his righteousness. That's our message. I mean, think of it. He became sin so we could become righteous. He died so we could forever live. He was separated from the Father so we could be forever joined. He was beaten so we could be healed. He became nothing so we could inherit everything. He became breakable so we could become unbreakable. That's the power of the cross. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's our message, that Jesus' death on the cross has released us from our oppression. Final claim to Jesus, Jesus' final claim as to his mission and purpose is this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I'll admit, I didn't even know what that meant. Sounds good, but I didn't understand it. But if you were a Jewish listener, hearing it from Jesus' mouth, you understood exactly what he was saying. Because the phrase, year of the Lord's favor, refers to the year of jubilee, also known as the year of release. It refers, it refers to the year in Jewish tradition where every 50 years, the slate was wiped clean in Jewish society. Get this, slaves were set free from their owners, debtors released from their outstanding debts, and all mortgage land was returned to original owners. 
All outstanding debts were pronounced paid in full every 50 years. The year of the Lord's favor boldly proclaimed that it was a new day, fresh start, clean slate for everyone. A year of jubilee for all the poor, all those oppressed, all those imprisoned because of their past. So when Jesus quoted that his purpose was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this year of release, this year of jubilee, Jesus was announcing that his mission came with this message, that your sins have been forgiven, that the penalty of your sin has been removed. You get a fresh start with God. You are released from judgment that formerly condemned you. Your sin debt has been paid in full. This is amazing news, people. This is the one we get to carry to people who are shackled to their sin. But he, is, he no longer condemns you, but rather he has made a way for you, a way to have your sin forgiven, a way to have your relationship with God restored, a way to save you. His name is Jesus, and he has been raised from the dead. See, the, your salvation is no longer dependent on how you behave but it's dependent, it's based on what you believe, or rather, who you believe in. The Apostle John records it this way in his gospel. John 3:16, probably the most famous and oft-repeated verse in the entire Bible, with good reason, because it communicates the purpose of Jesus' life and the plan of salvation, all in one verse. Probably the first verse, maybe the only verse you've ever memorized. You could probably read it from memory, but I'll read it for you. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's an awesome verse. It's an amazing verse. If you've not committed it to memory by now, you should do so. It's the beauty of the gospel in one verse. I think our only mistake is we don't pay, we don't pay attention to the verse immediately following John 3:16, and we should. See, because the following verse speaks to this final aspect of Jesus' mission to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You might not have this verse committed to memory, John 3, 17, but it reads this way. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let me read it again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Did you get that? That's awesome news, amen. Here's the problem. I am convinced that the world's got it backwards. Somehow we've mixed up the message and they actually believe that Jesus came to condemn the world rather than save it. Let's make sure we get the message straight, that we give them the whole gospel of John 3, 16 and 17, that God has made a way for them, a way to have their sins forgiven, right? That they're no longer condemned. Jesus took care of that on the cross. That's our good news. That's, that's the message we bring to people, folks. So one week after Easter, if you're asking yourself the question, now what? Given the truth of the resurrection that Jesus has been raised from the dead, this is our message. Jesus' death on the cross has made a way for you to be forgiven. Your debt has been paid. When you put your faith in Christ, your relationship with God is restored. Jesus' death on the cross releases you from condemnation, gives us a fresh start, a clean slate, the assurance that our debt has been stamped, paid in full. It's the year of jubilee, the year of release, the year of the Lord's favor. We say it this way now. Today is the day of salvation. This is good news, people. Yeah. Get this. Moreover, your eternity in heaven is secured. All those who trust Jesus will spend eternity with God rather than separated from him. Right? And his resurrection from the dead... 
authenticates that everything Jesus said and everything he did and everything I'm telling you now is absolutely true. I represent him, and I'm just here to remind you of what Jesus has already declared to you and me and anyone who will believe. Today is the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me for a benediction? Because if you are here today and you need your sins forgiven, like you need your relationship with God restored, I have good news for you. There will be people down here in just a moment after the service, and you can come down here, and they will pray with you, and we will settle the matter today. You can put your faith in Christ, the resurrected one, and he will wipe your slate clean. More than that, he promises you eternity in heaven. Your life will be transformed because of the one who is raised from the dead. I'm just here to remind you that the resurrected one still transforms people. He still saves people. His mission hasn't changed. We're just the messengers. So you can come down here, get prayed for, and we'll take care of business today. Because the resurrected one says to you, today is your day. We want to thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online. And we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And also uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community.